Special thanks to top-tier patron Phil Dixon for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, go over to Patreon and search for Demystified Podcast, and you can support us there from as little as £1 a month. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Out in the Pacific Ocean, there sits an island. It's not too big, not too small, just right. Warm enough year-round, tropical to be precise, but not what most would think of when that term is used. For one, there's hardly any trees. There are some, sure, but almost all of them are gone. Extinct volcanoes dot the island, three main ones, as with most islands in the Pacific. It ties into Polynesian mythology, unsurprisingly. Spits of land brought into existence when the fire meets the water. Now, this island would be rather unassuming were it not for a few interesting features. The first is hard to miss. The enormous towering stone statues. 900 in all. 13 feet tall, 5 feet around on average, cut from solid stone. Each of these statues is roughly humanoid in shape, of a distinct, stylized form, but recognizably a person. The heaviest of these statues is 86 tons, the average is 14. Your average car weighs around 2 tons. They line the island on plinths, or at least they did. While some of them are erect, almost all of them are tilted or knocked over. Fifty have been uprighted, the rest met a strange fate, still unknown to this day in an event called the toppling. The second main feature is the aforementioned lack of trees. Distinct because the topography of the island, and the presence of other trees, makes it plain that the deforestation was perpetrated by the people who settled the island. Where did all the trees go? Now, the large, strange statues and interesting vegetation would be curious enough if it weren't for the additional fact that this island is one of the most isolated places in the entire world. The nearest other inhabited place is Pitcairn, famous for being the most isolated inhabited place, some 2,000 kilometers away. It's part of Chile, over 3,500 kilometers away, but people have lived there for a long time. The first inhabitants arrived sometime in the 1200s, but they're mostly long gone. Several colonial ventures made sure of that. The people who remain have long since forgotten most of the ancient history, and as a result we're left with the mystery we have today. Over a thousand years ago, ancient Polynesians rode and sailed their seafaring canoes thousands of kilometers across open ocean and decided to settle this land. Then, they decided to cut down almost all of the trees and construct hundreds of these enormous stone monuments. And then they all fell down, and it would only be in the past few decades that they were restored to some of their former glory. Hard times came. Starvation, perhaps even cannibalism. Society changed, and where once there were great chiefs, warriors started to rule the land. The missionaries came. They brought religion, and they brought disease, and the population declined. Then the businessmen came. They bought the island, although it wasn't really for sale, and replaced the people with livestock. They and the missionaries deported the people. For their own good, so they said. Funny how that good looked a lot like silver dollars in the pockets of the businessmen. Some came back, returned by a sympathetic prince. But then a strange happenstance. The missionaries declared one man to be king, and then that king decided the island should belong to the Chileans. The Chileans then sold off more of the island. Then the general came to power, the one who would bring so much suffering and death in the name of economics, 
Although what that looked like was even more dollars lining the pockets of himself and his friends. The island was divided further, and the people confined to the capital. But the suffering abated. In time, people returned, and now the island sits as it always has done, alone in a vast ocean, surrounded by the noise and the silence of the waves. The island I'm talking about is Easter Island. From humble beginnings, the island, known by its native name of Rapa Nui, also the name of the native inhabitants, went through major changes. It's best known for the monumental stone statues on its coast, the Moai. But how and why those statues were made and the repercussions of their construction, as well as why they were torn down, remains to this day a mystery. As does the depopulation of the island. The missionaries and the capitalists spreading disease and forcibly evicting the islanders does explain it a little, but by the time they got there, the island had fewer than half of its high watermark population, 3,000, down from 15,000 a few centuries earlier. So today on Demystified, we look at the strange history of Rapa Nui, better known as Easter Island, and its guardian statues, the Moai. I'm cheating a little this week because this one isn't entirely a mystery in itself. We do know quite a lot about the history of Easter Island, but there are some pretty significant gaps that can be found that make it a mystery, I think. They revolve around two elements. The first is the founding of the islands by the original settlers, the Polynesians who sailed across the ocean, as they were wont to do, the Polynesians were and are some of the most accomplished sailors in all of human history, and landed on the island we now call Easter Island. Many get wrapped up in the question of why they went there, but to be honest, I'm not so concerned with that. People have always done that, sailed off into the sunset or sunrise to find new things, and yeah, they sailed into the unknown with no guarantee that there would be land on the other side, but so did Leif Erikson when he discovered Canada. I chalk it up to any number of the usual suspects. Political strife back home, overpopulation, environmental shifts, potential for economic gain, or good old-fashioned wanderlust, maybe even all of those. No, I'm far more interested in what happened when the Polynesians arrived on Rapa Nui, the things that happened between the arrival and the construction of the Moai. Then there's the Moai themselves. They're the great enigma that gives the mystery of Easter Island so much more meat to it. Why were they built? Whom by? Were they the cause, direct or otherwise, of the deforestation of the island? And what happened in the event known as the Great Toppling, when the Moai were cast down from their ahu, their plinths? To answer these questions as best we can, let's go back to the beginning. The first settlement of Easter Island. Carbon dating isn't particularly accurate on this front, giving the first settlement from anywhere between 300 and 1200 AD, quite the span, but most historians err towards the later date. Oral tradition states that the island was first settled by a two-canoe expedition originating from Mare Ringa, led by the chief Hotu Matau and his captain Tuo Koiho. The island was first scouted after Haumaka dreamed of such a far-off place. Hotu deemed it a worthwhile place to flee from a neighbouring chief, one to whom he had already lost several battles. When they arrived, the island apparently already had one lone settler, Nyatavakeatarona. After a brief stay, the colonists settled on different parts of the island. Hotu's heir, Tuumakeheke, was born on the island. Tuuokoiho was viewed as the main leader who brought the statues and caused them to walk, 
Uh, we'll get to walking later, by the way. That may have a more literal interpretation than you might expect. The people of Easter Island are considered South Polynesian, having been thought to be contemporaries of the settlers of Hawaii, both being occupied around the same time. Now, what's supremely interesting is what's called the Polynesian Diaspora Theory. It speculates that the settlers of Easter Island might have settled, or even come from, South America, because the technology available to the Polynesians would have enabled them to fully cross the Pacific. The theory has always been somewhat contentious. The Pacific is the largest ocean in the world by quite a ways. But Thor Heyerdahl, a Norwegian explorer, gave this theory a big boost with his 1947 Contiki expedition. This expedition sailed from Peru to French Polynesia in a replica boat, designed to prove that such Polynesian transoceanic voyaging was possible. Whilst it did have some modern tools, the point was to prove that using the technology available to the ancient Polynesians, the voyage was possible. Other evidence includes a 1999 trip done from South America to Easter Island, specifically using Polynesian crafts, the sweet potato, popular in Polynesia but originating in South America, linguistic similarities that allowed a Polynesian from Bora Bora travelling with Captain Cook to communicate with the Rapa Nui, to name but a few examples. It piques my interest, that's for sure. But whether the settlers came from Polynesia or from South America, or both, they arrived on Rapa Nui between 1100 and 1200, there or thereabouts. Then come the Moai, the massive stone statues that dominated the island's history, quite literally. Here's a line from Wikipedia, basically just describing the outline. I couldn't clarify it any better than it did. Quote, the human figures would be outlined in the rock wall first, and then chipped away until only the image was left. The overlarge heads, a three to five ratio between the head and the trunk, a sculptural trait demonstrating the Polynesian belief in the sanctity of the chiefly head, have heavy brows and elongated noses with a distinctive fish-hook-shaped curl of the nostrils. The lips protrude into a thin pout. Like the nose, the ears are elongated and oblong in their form. The jawlines stand out against the truncated neck. The torsos are heavy and sometimes the clavicles are subtly outlined in the stone. The arms are carved in bas-relief and rest against the body in various positions, hands and long slender fingers resting against the crest of the hips, meeting the hummy, the loincloth, with the thumb sometimes pointing towards the navel. Generally, the anatomical features of the backs are not detailed, but sometimes bear a ring and girdle motif on the buttocks and lower back. With the exception of one kneeling moai, the statues do not have clearly visible legs. End quote. So, yeah, I couldn't summarise it any better than that. However, they are considered to be whole-body statues even though they're commonly called the Easter Island heads, due to their sizable heads. Most are made from tuff, a compressed volcanic ash. 53 of them are made of basalt, tracheite, and red scoria, but most of them are made of tuff. Tuff in itself is kind of interesting, actually, if you're that way inclined, because the other place that it's really commonly used is... Italy. Yeah. The Romans and the Etruscans who came before them absolutely loved using tuff to build things. The Armenians too, apparently, so I'm told, but I found fewer examples of its use there. But would you have thought the two places where that one material is commonly used being Rome and Easter Island? But why the Moai? What purpose did they serve? Well, one interesting detail is that they almost uniformly lined the coasts and face inland, and we'll get back to that in a second, but really it's all got to do with mana. If you played video games or any kind of fantasy-style thing, mana is where magic comes from. But real-life mana comes from Polynesian folklore. It's sort of similar to the Chinese concept of qi, the spiritual life force or healing energy that resides in all things. Anyone or anything can have mana. It's universal. 
It's always been there and always will be. In Hawaiian belief, pono, or righteous actions, can help you gain more mana. But there's other ways of going about it. Because nature is dualistic, as represented by the dual gods Ku and Lono, both peace and violence can gain you mana. The Hawaiian king Kamehameha gained his through violence in his unifying of the kingdom of Hawaii. In the Maori culture of New Zealand, mana is a little different. Ihi is the purely natural force, while mana represents both spiritual power and earthly authority. For instance, a great tribe with large territory can be said to have mana. This kind of mana can be hereditary. A lineage with great mana can pass it down from ancestor to descendant. Furthermore, in gift-based societies such as the Maori, mana represented your ability to sway followers using resources, not dissimilar to how a feudal king might shower his subject with gifts in exchange for their loyalty. But all of this is very difficult to describe. The worldview of the various Polynesian cultures, which are similar to each other but not a monolith, is quite different to the Western philosophical tradition, or any other philosophical tradition for that matter. Mana is notoriously difficult to translate. For the sake of going forwards, given the cultural ties, we'll be using the Hawaiian Tahitian usage, since that better reflects the usage by the Rapa Nui, from my research. But even that is oversimplifying it massively. As I often do, I encourage further reading. The most similar language to Rapa Nui, for instance, is Mangarevan, a language spoken in parts of Tahiti, among other places. But really, this whole thing comes down to the idea that mana can be stored. On a person, it's stored in the head and the hair, but objects can also be used to store mana. So the Moai weren't just statues to represent authority, they were actual repositories of spiritual power, as mana was stored in them. Most Moai look inland. They're representations of ancestors using that mana to watch over the island, but seven of them look outward. These Moai are for those trying to find the island, using their power to enable safe passage. Some of the statues have pukau, representations of topknots worn by the chieftains. These moai are therefore seen as more powerful and important than those that don't. So now we know why the moai, let's look at how. How did they transport these titanic sculptures? Well, here we get back to the walking, and our old buddy Thor Heyderal comes back in with another contribution. An experiment on a theory that is suggested by some of the oral tradition that the moai were walked to their ahu by the Rapa Nui tilted from side to side, like you might move an exceptionally heavy cabinet that you couldn't lift. This experiment concluded that the method, whilst a popular early suggestion, was somewhat unlikely. It could be done, but it messes up the base of the statue. But some archaeologists disagree, and they say that the breakages of the Moai statues actually support this theory. They also argue it accounts for the several Moai found toppled on the sides of ancient roads, the idea being that they fell during transportation and were simply too heavy to lift once fallen and so left there. So what else? Well, they could have rolled them with tree logs, much like other ancient cultures used to move heavy objects. The island was, by the 1600s, nearly totally deforested. It's one of the great mysteries of Easter Island. When the settlers arrived in the 1200s, it was absolutely covered in trees. By the time the Europeans got there, there were basically none. So one suggestion is that the construction of the Moai led to the deforestation of the island, that the Moai were, ironically, part of the undoing of the Rapa Nui. So we have a why and we have two potential hows for the Moai. What happened to them? Why were they toppled? Well, it all goes back to an event referred to in Rapa Nui history as the Great Toppling. Whether this is one event or several events depends on which story you believe. In 1722, Dutch explorer Jakob Rogeveen, on his way to find the as-of-yet-unknown Terra Australis, finds Rapa Nui, 
He calls it Easter Island because he made landfall on Easter Sunday, and notes that the Maui are all still standing. When the French naval officer Abel Tour, the man behind the annexation of French Polynesia, visited in 1838, almost all of them were down. By 1868, none were left standing, with the exception of a few that were buried upright on the side of a hill. One story posits instances of a clan literally pushing over the Maui, perhaps to weaken another clan's mana, but such a thing would have been dangerous, culturally speaking. The oral history of the island suggests that there was a great earthquake, damaging a lot of the statues, toppling them over, and this is borne out by the fact that it sits within the Pacific Ring of Fire. There is, however, a darker chapter in coming, and another theory. Started in 1862, the slave trade hit the island badly. Over several months, 1,500 people, around half the population of the island, had been kidnapped by Peruvian slave traders, and when those who were taken came back, they brought smallpox and tuberculosis. At one point, the population dropped so low that the dead were unburied. Then the missionaries arrived. They'd come before, but now the island was so lacking in leadership and the population so diminished that many just converted. It's thought that at this point, the remaining upright Moai were pulled down, either by the islanders themselves, or by the missionaries or people from other countries, to try and stamp out the native religious beliefs. It's a story that's played out all over the world. When the missionaries from Spain converted the Aztec and the Inca, they solidified this by dismantling their temples and using the bricks to build cathedrals. On top of this, they forbade the native languages from being spoken to suppress the local culture. From places in Europe like Ireland and Iceland to the New World to Australia and Polynesia, the effects of zealotry have robbed millions of people of history and cultural traditions that are now resigned to the pages of textbooks. In some cases, like Aztec blood sacrifice, this was a good thing. But in most other cases, it's unfair, and it's one of the counterfactuals that I'm most interested in, seeing what the world would look like if these cultural practices persisted beyond fringe revival movements and folklore. Of course, such things are always done under good pretenses, civilization or salvation. It's the same excuse used by the conquistadors that's used when the Taliban dynamites Buddhist statues in eastern Afghanistan, relics from a far bygone age with untold historical value blown to smithereens in the name of extremist fundamentalism. It's part of the reason that museums, and that's global museums, not just Western ones, are such important cultural touchstones, protecting history from those who would vandalise it for their own reasons, masquerading it as righteousness. We'll return to that in the next segment, though. For now, let's move on to the mystery of the island itself. At its peak, it had a population of around 15,000. When the Chileans annexed it in 1888, its population was in the hundreds. How did this come to pass? Well, to start with, the settlers themselves accidentally sowed the seeds of their own downfall by introducing the Polynesian rat to the island. Nor marks on seeds found by archaeobotanists indicate that their introduction absolutely ravaged the local plant life, disrupting the delicate ecosystem. Then there's the Moai. Constructing the Moai and their transportation took a huge amount of resources, further depleting what was an already increasingly sparse island. When the settlers arrived, it had been verdant, and it would still be for centuries. It's thought that some of the purpose behind the construction of the Moai might have been an inadvertent form of using the minerals behind the rock chippings to fertilise the soil, through a form of trial and error, but this is entirely speculative. Historian Jared Diamond of Guns, Germs and Steel fame suggests that cannibalism was present once the food started to run low. The high water mark of the population was 15,000 in the 1600s, but by the 1700s it had dropped to around 3,000. The lack of food leads to over-harvesting of the resources on the island, 
The lack of tall trees meant that boat building became an increasingly rare skill, leading to less and less fishing. The deforestation, which again possibly due to the use of wood in moai construction and transportation, led to soil erosion, making agriculture and foraging even more difficult. It was at this time that the society on Rapa Nui started to shift, away from traditional clan structures and towards warrior societies, called Matatoa. It's also at this time that the religion that created the moai, the ancestor-worshipping, started to phase out, and the Birdman cult began. The Birdman cult was a strange religion, based on the worship of Makemake, a creator god, and whilst ancestors and mana were still paramount, the conduit for those beings was no longer the moai. It was the Birdman, a human conduit chosen in a ritual race that involved collecting the first egg from the season of the islet of Motunui, swimming back to Rapa Nui, and climbing the sea cliff of Ranokao to the clifftop village of Oronogo. I apologise if I get any of these pronunciations wrong. Makemake wasn't the only god in the pantheon. Hawotu Taketake, the chief of the eggs, a male god, his wife Viehoa, and another female deity, Vie Kanata, were also present, and each of these four had a servant god that was associated with them. All eight's names would be chanted by contestants during the various rituals preceding the egg hunt. Prophets would have visions indicating which of the important men of the island would compete in the race. The winner would be considered a conduit to the spiritual world, and would receive preferential treatment for himself and his clan. But what all of this suggests is that at this time, the 1700s or so, the island was undergoing major political and social upheaval, resulting in cultural changes that had potentially been for a long time coming. It's thought that the Birdman cult was present on the island for a long time, but only became the predominant religious sect after this time period. This is also when most of the Moai were toppled. So the most likely conclusion I can draw from this is that the earthquake toppled a lot of them, but due to the social changes, depopulation and other tensions, neither the resources nor the time could be allocated to replacing the Moai. The toppled ones were simply too heavy to re-erect. For a little more of the timeline of this, in 1770 some Spanish visited the island and reported all the Moai were standing. When Captain Cook visited in 1774, he said that some had been toppled. So the first toppling, proper, can be said to be between roughly 1771 and 1774. But the biggest change for the island came when Jean-Baptiste Trobonnier brought almost all of the island in 1868. He had had a falling out with the missionaries there, and between him and them, they forcibly relocated all but 171 Rapa Nui to other places. Some to Tahiti, some to the Gambia Islands, and turned Rapa Nui into a sheep ranch. Alexander Salmon Jr., an Anglo-Polynesian merchant and prince, who I mentioned at the beginning, worked quite hard to repatriate many of the Rapa Nui. After Dutrobonnier was killed, either murdered or assassinated, depending on your definition, Salmon bought all the land he could and was the sole employer on the island. The island was annexed in 1888. After many of the local chieftains had died, the Catholic missionaries appointed a king of the island, a man named Atamu Tekena. The Chileans then got him to sign a treaty formally ceding the island to them, and Salmon sold almost all of his land to the Chileans. Naturally, this made many of the Rapa Nui rather unhappy, but they weren't in any position to complain about it. Until the 60s, the Rapa Nui were confined to one location, the capital, Hangaroa. The rest of the island was a sheep farm. In 1966, they got Chilean citizenship. During the Pinochet regime, when ultra-capitalist General Augusto Pinochet ruled Chile as his dictator from 1974 to around 1990, the island was divided up between private investors and placed under martial law. Finally, in 2007, it was recognised as a special region of Chile, as part of the administrative region of Valparaiso, the historically significant Pacific seaport. What of Rapa Nui today? 
Well, in 2010 and 11, a hotel was occupied by Rapa Nui natives, complaining about the historical mistreatment at the hands of their colonizers and demanding a return to the locals much of the land that was bought and sold by the Chilean government under the Pinochet regime. The police evicted them in 2011, but in the years since, there's been something of a Rapa Nui revival among many of the natives still there, and attempts to decipher their written script, called Rongorongo, are ongoing. So, perhaps silver lining? After centuries of infighting and outside colonization, perhaps the Rapa Nui will finally get a chance to focus on the rebuilding of their island. So what was the mystery of Easter Island? Why were the Moai built? Did their construction lead to the disappearance of the island's population? Hopefully I've answered some of these questions, as well as given you an insight into Easter Island and some Polynesian culture. The Moai were ancestor statues used as mana repositories and guardians for the island, under the auspices of the predominant religious beliefs until the ascendancy of the Birdman cult. They were built mostly between 1250 and 1500, and their construction and transportation was heavily resource-intensive. This led to massive deforestation, as borne out by pollen samples indicating the rough timescale that the island went from fully forested to almost totally deforested. This deforestation had several side effects. Firstly, it led to soil erosion and decreased plant life. The introduction of the Polynesian rat exacerbated this. Secondly, it meant fewer resources to use on constructing long-range boats, meaning that outside contact diminished and fishing became an increasingly unprofitable form of food production, what agriculture there was was not particularly abundant. This then led to the overuse of certain seabirds as food, further diminishing the biodiversity of the island. This all then led to the societal upheaval that resulted in the introduction of a form of a warrior society, led by the Matatoa and the Birdman religion. Until, of course, the Europeans came. The arrival of the French in the 1800s and the various missionaries around that time led to the privatisation of the island and the forced depopulation of the already flagging culture. The spread of the diseases, to which the Rapa Nui had little or no resistance, didn't help this. Alexander Salmon repatriated some of the Rapa Nui, but the population was still quite low. At the lowest point of population, most of the Rapa Nui converted to Christianity, resulting in the loss of much of the island's oral tradition. The island was then annexed by Chile and some serious political chicanery. Pinochet's privatisation of the island further disenfranchised the Rapa Nui, who were then only newly Chilean citizens but the population had been recovering. Now there are around 9,500 Rapa Nui, and Easter Island has about 7,750 inhabitants, as of 2017. Despite the loss of much of the Rapa Nui's cultural traditions, their religion, their oral history, their own form of Polynesian tattooing, there has been a resurgence of Rapa Nui identity in the past few decades. I mentioned the hotel occupation of 2011, but apart from that, some of the younger Rapa Nui have been revitalising the tattooing scene, and historians are working to decode the island's written script. Many still speak the Rapa Nui language, as well as Chilean Spanish. There's an ongoing situation having started in 2015 where some of the Rapa Nui threw out some park rangers non-violently and occupied some of the island, demanding independence from Chile. How that situation will resolve, I can't say. I think it's unlikely Chile will let them go, after all, the political capital of the people of Easter Island is pretty minuscule, and they've got some political problems of their own to work out first. So, the lesson of the story today is... Don't deforest your island and ruin its ecology to build statues, I suppose. Not that the Rapa Nui would have been aware of the repercussions of the construction of the Moai. 
It's not really fair to put modern scientific knowledge on top of them. Sure, it's pretty seriously short-sighted to use all of your wood to build rollers to move statues, but they couldn't have known about things like soil erosion, nor could they have anticipated the coming of the missionaries and the diseases that that would bring. Missionaries get mixed feelings from me, of any faith. On the one hand, some of the scarcest historical accounts we have of the practices of certain indigenous peoples come from missionaries, such as the recordings of the Irish mythological cycles by Christian monks. On the other hand, most of the loss of those indigenous practices were caused by the same missionaries. The reason we can't tell Celtic gods from folk heroes is because the Christian monks often rewrote the stories to scrub out the religious influences as much as possible. Beowulf, the Germanic folk tale and cornerstone of Saxon and possibly Norse literature, describes Grendel as a descendant of the biblical Cain. What he really was we'll never know, because that's lost. But the story remains because it was written down, having survived centuries in a single codex almost certainly written by a monk. I never could get behind blind fanaticism though, I hope most people can't. Not too long ago a would-be missionary was killed by the North Sentinelese Islanders in the Indian Ocean when trying to preach his faith to them even after being warned several times that this would be the certain outcome. The North Sentinelese are infamously violent to all outsiders who've come to their island since the British abducted some of them in the 1800s. As a result, we know almost nothing about them, other than that they're one of the world's few remaining Stone Age societies. Attempts to contact them could grant a higher quality of life, or we could spread disease to them and wipe them out, as has happened historically. So what do we do when climate change threatens to sink their island? Do we try and rescue them, potentially against their will? Or do we let them drown, through absolutely no fault of their own, because if anyone can be said to have not contributed to climate change, it's the North Sentinelese. Hopefully you'll see some of the parallels I'm drawing here. Now, the Rapa Nui didn't blindly attack everyone who came to their island, and I'm not advocating that they should have, otherwise they'd be in the same boat as the North Sentinelese. But the interaction between indigenous groups and outside forces is always a touchy subject and quite hard to navigate. Most would agree that, nowadays, the imposition of one's culture on another is morally wrong. Historically, however, it was seen as the only way to save a lesser people, and because of that attitude, ironically, it's how we have some of the records of these cultures today. The ancient Celts didn't have a written language, it was an entirely oral mythology. It survives only because the monks who worked to eradicate it also worked to write it down. And what do we do with the remnants of it? The debate of giving back artefacts and who's best place to keep them? There's a Moai that's in the British Museum. Should it stay there? If climate change sinks Rapa Nui, as it will many other islands, is it the prerogative of the Rapa Nui to decide whether or not all of the Moai should go beneath the waves? Or should some be preserved at the risk of perpetuating a colonial-esque relationship between Britain and the inhabitants of Easter Island? This isn't a question I have answers to, as someone who narrowly avoided becoming an archaeologist, I don't feel qualified to weigh in too heavily on this debate. Some will say that the artefacts demand preservation in and of themselves, regardless of the cultural implications, that they exist beyond that interpretation. Others will say that they can't be seen in any way outside of the cultural context, and thus their return is the only way to go. What the story of Easter Island shows more than anything, and the mystery that developed afterwards, is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The Rapa Nui intended to enhance their island with the Moai by maximising their mana. Instead, they accidentally caused its ecological decline, leading to their own population decline. The missionaries wanted to save the souls of the Rapa Nui. 
Instead, they opened the door to the mass privatization of the island over the course of a century, its forcible depopulation, again, for their own good, and eliminated the cultural legacy of the island. Pinochet was hell-bent on privatizing the island to prevent the spread of communism and for his own economic ends, which left the Rapa Nui, and most of Chile for that matter, more disenfranchised than ever before, and his military repression caused untold personal and cultural damage. So where do we go from here? What good intention will cause the next problem? I'm not saying never act on your good intentions. After all, those monks recorded the history we have today. But if you find yourself unwaveringly dedicated to something, stop and ask yourself why. After all, if you ask the Moai whether their construction was worth it, they'll get nothing but silence. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting from Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at demystified underscore pod, and support us on Patreon from as little as £1 a month. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>